world society was collapsed into a variety of competitive nationalisms. And uh, uh, one of the themes of this series of lectures is going to be that Africa has played a major part in uh, trying to extend uh, the range of social conception and political ambition, but it is also a victim to the opposite tendency of uh, narrowing uh, human aspiration uh, to a more local and, and national level. Okay, so this is the big one, this lecture. It's, uh, it's world history conceived of as a human economy and then Africa's relationship to that. So we have to start with the notion of uh, what is it that we're going through? What is our period in human history? We all know that something really quite dramatic has been going on for at least 200 years. But what is it? Before we start identifying it and explaining it, we need to know what it is. Because, uh, I mean, one of the points I might have made about Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, last time, was uh, that Rodney finishes his history with the end of colonialism in the 50s. And he's writing in the 70s, but there's this gap between what's going on in the 70s and, and how he's accounting for Africa's plight. And certainly we can't afford to make that, that move. We can't locate our interest in the past. It has to be what's going on now. So today is an attempt to, to place that, answer that question provisionally in the broadest possible way and Gordon Child is certainly one of the, the main uh, uh, sources that we would have for that because he uh, identified our period, these last two centuries, as something uh, governed by the Industrial Revolution. That's one way of talking about the great transformation of our times. Uh, and he sought to establish in the past two other uh, major revolutions in the human condition, in human production. The invention of agriculture, which he called the Neolithic Revolution, and the invention of cities and states, and classes, and much else, uh, which he uh, called the Urban Revolution. So it matters to us what this period is, but let me first describe it very briefly. I mean, in Around 1800, to our best scholarly estimates, the, the human population was one billion people. It had taken the whole of, of time, as it were, to reach one billion. Today, it is seven billion people, uh, not much more than 200 years later. Now, that works out at an average annual growth rate of one and a half percent. Human population has been growing at a rate of 1.5% for the last 200 years. Just to place it in context, Africa is the only major region that is experiencing significant population growth, and its population growth is 2.5%, roughly. Which is, and if this carries on, if this gap 
between Africa and the rest of the world carries on, Africa will become by far the dominant population in the world. I mean, uh, when it historically was not. I mentioned that last time. The second feature is urbanization. Our best guess is that less than 3% of the world's population lived in cities in 1800. Today, as you know, the urbanization of the world has reached roughly a half. Now what that means is that the cities have been growing at the rate of 2% a year for two centuries. And the, the reason why the urban share is increasing faster uh, is, is because uh, of that gap. That's what happens. That the gap between 1.5% population growth and 2% urban growth produces that effect over 200 years. These small you know, percentages make a huge difference in uh, quite a short time. Uh, and this is, uh, I mean, essentially, if, uh, if K is a constant, which in this case it has to be because it's 100%, and R is the rate of growth, which in this case is 2%, then it starts out very slow, then accelerates, and then tails off as it gets near the end. That's called an S-curve. And uh, urbanization is clearly an S-curve, certainly when measured as a proportion, and you know what, what we can imagine that we're somewhere there. In other words, at the point of maximum growth in uh, the share of urban population. The third uh, variation, uh, variable, is energy production and consumption. Energy production and consumption over the last 200 years has been growing at an annual average rate of 3%. In other words, energy production has been doubled the rate of population growth, and that is another measure of why uh, the world, as it were, has become more affluent in the last uh, 200 years. Uh, as a result of this gap between energy production and, and population growth in general, uh, people live longer, they work less, they spend more. But of course, as we all know, the distribution of this additional energy is wildly unequal. Uh, Americans consume 400 times the amount of energy of citizens of Uganda, for example. And this uh, incredible inequality uh, is one reason, for example, why the Copenhagen Climate Change Summit failed, because the Europeans and the Americans wanted to set the carbon emission levels for the rest of the world at a level lower than their own. And the Chinese and the Indians and the South Africans and the uh, Brazilians just wouldn't wear that because they knew that, that their uh, societies were developing, had to develop. And in fact, both the Brazilian and Chinese presidents made the same joke at this summit, which was in 2009. They said that President Obama was like a rich man who gorges alone on a feast and then invites his neighbors in for coffee and asks them to share the bill. <laughs> uh, so, 
And the thing is, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, so you check it out on, on YouTube. I mean, there, there are all these kind of exposés by German journalists that show how the Chinese wrecked the Copenhagen summit. You know, but they, they have, you know, secret tapes of people saying to each other, I don't think this is going to work for us, do you? <laughs> but it's all their fault, these bloody Asians and Africans. So this is our situation. We have uh, an incredible change in uh, the human condition, which has taken place in a, a, a very short time. And it, it has various dimensions, and one of them is accelerating inequality. I mean, I could talk some more, probably shouldn't, about the S-curve of population growth. I mean, this is sometimes called uh, the demographic transition, that uh, populations increase when uh, fertility rates exceed death rates. But after a while, and when they do, when, when, I mean, the reason why uh, fertility birth rates exceed death rates is because people are insecure about the future of their children. This is known in uh, population theory as R selection. You go for, for the rate of reproduction at the expense of uh, anything else. But after a while, when they become more secure of the longevity of their children, they begin to pay more attention to the quality of their children. Uh, their education, and they have fewer children. And this is called case selection. And our selected species would be mackerel, let's say, and a case selected species would be whales. And, and we have become, and probably were from a long time back, a case selected species. But there are variations in that. The, the demographic transition theory, which of course is extremely contentious, uh, argues that eventually birth rates decline and the population growth rate reduces. And this is already the case, obviously, in the West. It's also the, the, uh, the case in many Asian countries. And even in Africa, uh, there are signs of this uh, aging process uh, taking place. So these are all major considerations that we have to think about and of course the question is, what is driving this process? What, what, you know, what, 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 is, what is producing it? And the favorite candidate, as you know, is capitalism. That there is a particular social organization called capitalism, which is driving both the economic growth and the inequality. So obviously at some stage in this course we're going to have to uh, address that. But you, another word for it is development. The development is this process of transformation through growth. And of course there are many people, especially in Europe and America, who hold that development should is, is a thing of the past. It cannot be embraced for the whole of the human population. And, uh, you know, some brakes have to be put on somehow before all the others destroy the planet by emulating what the West has already done. And uh, this, of course, is something with which I have very little sympathy. And neither, I would say, do the majority of Africans 
have much sympathy with it. They can see what's available on television any day, and they want it. They want some of it. They want their death, and they have a right to want it, and their politicians will be driven to give it to them if they can. So there's no point people in the, in the West saying, you know, we've got to have sustainable development, which means tighten your belts a la Angela Merkel. No. There has to be some other solution. But anyway, that's part of the debate of our times. This is what it's all about. But it's mainly about negotiation of the difference between uh, the West and the rest, which is taking place at this time. Okay. So, the key thing that I think we ought to focus on in this lecture is production and uh, productivity, since uh, clearly by any account, the main driver of this change has been a shift from animate to inanimate sources of energy. Animate sources of energy means plants, animals, and human beings themselves who consume plants and animals. In our time, there's been a tremendous shift to the use of inanimate uh, uh, energy, principally fossil fuels, and these, this energy has been converted by machines. So the com combination of inanimate e energy and machine converters is one indispensable feature of this change. So, I'm just saying, as a principle, you should always start with where we are, not where we were. So it's going to be very compressed and, and lots of shortcuts uh, for the, in the interest of trying not to present what I say as truth, but to indicate some of the variables that, that might be disputed in trying to seek an explanation for our situation. So we start from a situation where hominids are just part of the animal <coughs> and plant environment of the world. There's no boundaries, people can more or less go anywhere. Now, I mean, this is a very good place to study this period because South Africa has a legitimate claim to being uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, centers for uh, hominid development. Uh, it's very well taught in the archaeology section of the Anthropology and Archaeology Department. It's something that at one point I thought of trying to include here by farming out the lectures to people like Gary. So, but I decided in the end that I had to lecture in a brief period on things that I know a bit more about. So, uh, so this, this part of the story, especially Africa's place in world history, gets kind of spun over, if you like. I mean, just to remind you of some of the great, and I would say still unresolved uh, questions. I mean, where did the universe come from? How did it start? You know, Big Bang, okay. I don't believe that either. But uh, uh, why should the, the universe have an origin? That's another question. Uh, where did human beings come from? How many times are there different, were there several different starts for the human beings? Uh, whether we have multiple origins or a single origin, at the moment, like the Big Bang Theory, 
South Africa is the Big Bang Theory for uh, 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 human origins. And most people are convinced that, that human uh, uh, radiation from Africa was from a single point and quite recent in evolutionary terms. All of these questions I think are of interest to us, but they don't impinge so directly on my own competence. I'm stretching my competence anyway, but we'll leave it like that. So we start out from the notion that until 1800, inanimate sources of energy, by inanimate sources of energy we mean fossil fuels, wind, water, that kind of thing, were minuscule. I mean, you know, some boats used wind in their sails to move, some uh, hydraulic systems had limited uh, capacities. But until 1800, uh, humanity still depended on what it always had, on animals and plants. I mean, I can't resist Telling, you know, giving you my favorite way of distinguishing between animals and plants. Animals are things that have to move to get their food, and plants are things that stay put and expect the food to come to them. And uh, we, of course, have uh, interacted symbiotically uh, with both of these sources of energy and food. But originally, now, the, the really big question about human production is who does the work? And it's obvious that most animals, including early human beings, let nature do most of the work. In other words, they found their sources of food where they occurred naturally and collected them in some form, whether plants or animals. They didn't put any effort or very little effort into producing these animals and plants. So this means that the energy requirements of early human production are very low. And another way of putting that, the opposite way around, is that labor productivity is very high under these circumstances. In other words, the return that you get for a unit of human labor is greater if something else does most of the work of producing that thing. I mean, at one time we thought that hunter-gatherers uh, were um, poor scavengers living on the margins of uh, subsistence. Uh, but uh, we found that even the hunter-gatherers that remain in the world, which are in remote and inaccessible or undesired places like deserts and mountains and the Arctic uh, wastes and the deepest jungles and so on, that these people, whatever relationship they have to early human beings, which is disputable, uh, nevertheless uh, have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, it doesn't take them many hours a week to produce what they need to live off. That's the conclusion of contemporary ethnography of hunter-gathering peoples. So now we come to the agricultural revolution. What is this? The chief uh, word for it is uh, domestication. 
And I shall argue that domestication entails intensification of human labor inputs. Now, domestication means taking some animals and plants into a protected environment in which the responsibility for their growth becomes increasingly human responsibility. Now, there are several causal questions involved here. Why would people give up a highly productive, energy-efficient system uh, in order to put more of their own labor uh, into uh, growing food? But the fundamental point of the agricultural revolution, whatever its benefits, is that as a result of it, people had to do more work and got less out of their labor. They did more work for less. And the whole period which we are now escaping from for the first time in which living off the land was the principal means of production of human societies, in the whole of that period, from the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago or thereabouts, uh, to uh, 200 years ago, in all that period, the only way that agricultural societies could progress was by making people work harder for less. And this meant that the most advanced civilizations of the 18th century, which were Western Europe and China, had reached the point where the majority of people working the land had almost nothing and were on the edge of starvation and, and death. I mean, the economic historian R.H. Tawney uh, once described the Asian uh, rice paddy agriculture as peasants uh, standing in water with the water level up to their nose and the merest ripple made them drown. The uh, economist uh, Malthus, writing at at the end of the 18th century, said there's no point in having more food because if there's more food, people will have more children and they'll end up dying for lack of food. Now this understanding of the, the misery and precariousness of the peasant populations of the most advanced civilizations on the planet in the 18th century is a result of the logic of domestication. It's the only way these societies can progress is by making people work harder for less. So we tend to think of civilizations as being represented by their great buildings and so on. You just have to remember what it is that put the pyramids up. And, it's, uh, and so obviously, I mean, one way of understanding this uh, tribe, so we have before agriculture, agriculture, after agriculture. That's one way of dividing up uh, human history, in which uh, the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution mark off three different phases of human history. So our phase is the phase in which it becomes possible after millennia of agricultural development for human 
human beings to produce more for less work. In other words, human productivity can now escape from this intensification logic. And the reason it can do so is because that labor is now harnessed to machines driven which convert inanimate energy. That's the reason why we can produce more and to some extent end up working less. Of course, this doesn't apply equally to everybody in the world, but it's a major feature. I mean, one reads all the time about uh, people entering the world economy by offering sweatshop labor. I mean, you, you look at Indonesia today, for example, which is uh, experiencing considerable rates of growth despite the global economic crisis, principally by making use of cheap labor in ways which undoubtedly are exploitative. Every now and then somebody discovers that Nike is using children in such a situation and it creates a huge scandal. But the, uh, the fundamental logic of the world economy is that people who have nothing can only enter it by offering cheap labor. And if you look at places like Hong Kong, China itself, Japan, uh, not to mention many other places, they were all in this phase of sweatshop labor at the first point, at the first point of entry into the world economy. But of course, there are always uh, protectionist uh, voices that argue that existing labor forces should be protected from this cheap labor and so on and so forth. Okay, so the question arises, why why would this shift have occurred? The, the standard the liberal explanation, which is not just something invented by the Cato Institute today, it's been going for several centuries. The liberal explanation is that the food supply dried up or became more scarce. And people became much more concerned about securing uh, their food supplies. And as a result, they felt they had to take greater care, and this involved them in investing more labor. I mean, most ways of uh, uh, intensifying labor input involve more work. I mean, once you have to protect the, 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 the plants or the animals, you have to protect them from wild animals and predators, you have to protect the, the plants from weeds, from uh, birds, and uh, if you irrigate to secure uh, water supplies, you have to maintain the ditches and uh, repair them and so on and so forth. So all of these things uh, uh, involve more work. I mean, the colonial uh, empires encountered in many places uh, people with uh, they encountered hill tribes, people operating with large amounts of land. I mean, Africa itself is a place where land was not uh, traditionally very scarce. It was people who were scarce rather than land. And so uh, they, they, they tended to look at shifting agriculturalists, people who maybe had 20 the amount of land to work around uh, in order to maintain get the food they needed. These 
were often thought of as being messy and backward. In fact, the, the, the idea of an advanced agriculture was Chinese peasants standing up to their necks in water or uh, British peasants working in, with very small amounts of land with hedgerows and walls and where all the land is extremely scarce and so on. But in fact, the productivity of shifting agriculturalists is always higher than it is amongst peasant populations because they use nature to do more of the work and put less of their own work into cultivation. So one question is that this shift took place because the food was scarce. But if you uh, uh, shift attention towards the social structure, you might ask a different kind of question. If it is that if it's the case that agricultural development involved increasing inequality throughout history, that shifting agriculturalists are usually more egalitarian than peasants in major civilizations, you can then pose the question, who benefits? Who benefits from this move? And one possible answer is that some sections of the population benefited disproportionately from domestication, and they didn't mind that the majority of the people, the women, the young men, or whoever, were actually working harder for less because they were getting more. There, there, there are all kinds of theories that emerged in the 19th century about the transition to agriculture. They were often framed in terms of the Bible or uh, whatever was known about the ancient Near East which was fairly limited at the time. But what we're talking about here is a shift towards what was known as the kind of Abraham complex, the, towards patriarchal uh, cattle herders, perhaps. I mean, there's a man called Bachofen who wrote a book called Das Mutterrecht, uh, Matriarchy or Mother Rights, in which he argued that uh, before agriculture, society was mainly controlled by women and that uh, this uh, change was essentially uh, a, a change uh, benefiting men and not just all men, but some of them. Okay, and I have to, you know, skim over some of this, but, the, but this idea will not go away and may even be coming back, I don't know. Okay, so where does Gordon Child fit into this? Gordon Child wrote about the Neolithic Revolution, the invention of agriculture, very perceptively changed how we all saw it. He produced two books in the 1930s. One was called Man Makes Himself, and the other, What Happened in History, which I think is marginally the revised version of which is better. Notice, by the way, you know, man makes himself, Bernal, the extension of man. These are people for whom human history as a whole is their topic. Of course, they didn't, you know, they had not been feminized by then. So they used the term man for everyone. But that shouldn't disguise the fact that they were interested in, in developing a synoptic view of human history as a whole. Charles' uh, uh, book, 
essentially argues that there's another revolution within agriculture. If agriculture dominated human societies for uh, 10,000 years, or at least uh, there was a point in the middle of that, around 5,000 years ago, 3,000 BC, when another revolution took place, in which cities and states and highly unequal class societies emerged for the first time. And he called that the urban revolution. So one of the disputed uh, issues in any typology of human history as a whole is how many revolutions are there and what is the significance of this urban revolution, if that is what it is, uh, in helping us to understand what's going on now. Because one thing we can be sure of, if we call the products of urban, uh, the urban revolution agrarian civilization, that is to say, societies in which the vast bulk of labor was carried out by people on the land, but which were controlled by small urban centers. If we call that agrarian civilization, as opposed to, let's say, industrial civilization, or whatever, then the main issue really is, I mean, for us, I mean, modern economics arose out of the struggle to displace from central positions of power the military landlord aristocracies that control most of the uh, uh, most advanced civilizations. In other words, political economy, the first phase of modern economics was essentially about why economies will progress if revenue is transferred from the landlords to the capitalists. That's the, so it's a class conflict between the people who, who essentially uh, govern society by controlling the land through force and people who hoped to build another society based on uh, uh, rule through accumulating money. Gordon Charles' book is absolutely strategic for that because he insisted that there were at least two uh, revolutions. Uh, one was the invention of agriculture, which then produced certain kind of tribal society, and eventually it spawned uh, civilizations, uh, societies with cities, but still, uh, firmly anchored in uh, rural production. Now, this idea of stages uh, was really, uh, and it's been around for a long time, but it was mainly invented by the Enlightenment liberal philosophers of the 18th century, especially in France and Scotland. And I believe that the, the source of almost everything that we read, including child, is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's discourse on the origins and foundations of inequality among men. I mean, I have developed from this a, a, a particular genealogy, which you can read on my website, in which I argue that, that, that Rousseau set the terms for these questions. And he provided the, essentially, the, the classification that has been in place ever since. And the, the theme that he was concerned with was inequality. 
That is, he knew that the society he was living in was arbitrary and unequal in the extreme. He was working for a democratic revolution, a democratic revolution in which people would be more equal, in which they would be able to, they would have more control over their economic destiny and control over their own government. And in order to do that, they had to, I mean, the philosophers had to discover not what is it that makes people different, that underlies the inequality between peasants who've always been living on the land and some conquering nobility that govern them for the time being and have no other justification for doing so than that they won once some time ago. No, what he wanted was a democratic constitution based on what all human beings have in common. What is their human nature? What is it that is the irreducible common basis of who we are, and we need to build democratic constitutions on that, which was the beginning of modern anthropology. The question was, how is it that we are all equal? And what is the basis for that equality? So this is the, uh, his, his book. He has a notion of original mankind, which is kind of funny, odd. He believes that we were originally solitary creatures and that we were autonomous, and that we had a kind of existential freedom, no bosses, no, nobody to tell us what to do, and so on and so forth. I should say that, that in looking at inequality, he wasn't interested in why is it some people are tall and some people are small. Thank you. I mean, uh, he wasn't interested in why is it that some people are more intelligent than others. What he was interested in was why is it that some people, because of their social position, get to command others as inferiors for reasons that have nothing to do with their own personal qualities. That's what he wants to know how did that arise. And he set out a, a, a scenario of what the, the original hominids were like, which supported his view. He then uh, identified a long period of hunter-gathering, only in his case he had huts thrown in, they were all got entirely on the move, they had, they, they, they had somewhere to live, as it were. And then he comes uh, to what he calls the birth of nascent society. Nascent, meaning the beginning of you know, birth, nascent. And this is more or less what we would call tribal society. He was writing against Thomas Hobbes, who, as you very well know, is one of the few things that everybody knows, thought that in the beginning, human beings lived lives that were nasty, brutish, and short. And that the natural condition for us is everybody fights everybody else. I mean, war against all. Rousseau argues that this is not human nature to be competitive and aggressive, individualistic, nasty. Uh, it, it's something that occurred after the agricultural revolution. And he saw the chief feature of that revolution as being the invention of property. That this was, the, he said, the first man who fenced up a field and said, this is mine, not yours, invented civilization. Anyway, the result is that people started competing over property and land and animals, uh, fighting each other, and it became a mess. 
And so as a result, they uh, entered a social contract to build states. So he, he has the urban revolution built in as the kind of conclusion to this development. Uh, the people make states, but uh, the problem with these states is that they formalize and preserve the inequality between rich and poor that existed before their formation. They lead to a gap between the powerful and the powerless, and they have as their culmination in many cases one-man rule, dictatorship. And he says that dictatorship is the last stage of inequality of civil society because at this point everyone is subordinate to Stalin or whoever, Hitler or whoever he is. And that creates an, an, a kind of equality between everyone against the dictator and makes it possible to have another revolution and start again. Anyway, this, is, uh, this book, which was published in 1754, I believe is the origin of anthropology. And uh, it certainly gave rise to Lewis Henry Morgan, who wrote a book in uh, 1877 called Ancient Society. And he took Rousseau's three stages, which is pre-agriculture, agriculture and after the state and he essentially developed this notion uh, and was most interested in the transition between tribal society and the state. Uh, he called the first stage savagery, that's hunter-gatherers. He called the tribal stage barbarism and, and he called the third stage civilization. So we have three phases here that correspond, that are divided by the invention of agriculture and the urban revolution that child is talking about. And the first two stages are based on kinship, but the uh, third stage is based on class division and state power. Now, I haven't given you any indication as to how these various authors explain all this. But I think probably by far the best uh, point of entry, apart from uh, uh, Child himself, uh, Friedrich Engels, the partner of Karl Marx, wrote a book called uh, The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State, which was based very heavily on Morgan. Morgan is thought of as the founder of modern anthropology uh, because principally he was a North American Indian ethnographer, and what he did was to match ethnographic findings to the historical sources on the ancient Mediterranean and Near East that most people had used before then uh, to investigate the past and to construct uh, visions of uh, human history. Uh, anyway, Engels' version is probably the best of, of all these. And it, of course, became quite uh, uh, popular in, in, in the 70s and thereabouts because it was seen as a charter for the feminist movement. Engels was a, a rich German businessman who lived with a, an Irish mill hand <laughs> informally for 25 years. So he was disposed that way, I guess. But he's certainly one of the sources for linking the development of the private property complex 
to increase the inequality between men and women. He argues that, that the position of women deteriorates with the advance of civilization. Well, in the last five minutes, I, I should just say something about how Africa fits into this. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the first thing, as I mentioned last time, is that, that whatever Africa is, it's either uh, a racial idea, the land of the blacks, or it's a territorial principle which is more varied, if you like. And this is reflected in the regions that we identify in Africa. The North Africa, the Maghreb, Egypt and the, the Maghreb, is very often distinguished from the rest of Africa for the very good reason, as we will see next time, that, that this was always part of the urban revolution. The urban revolution took place in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, and to some extent uh, probably in India too, and the whole region was uh, brought under its influence. So the fact is that if Africa, as Sheikh Antar Job insisted, should be seen as including Egypt and its North African neighbours, then Africa has been part of the urban revolution from the beginning. <laughs> Southern Africa, especially South Africa, has always claimed to be exceptional because of the exceptional nature of its capitalism. The South African capitalism has developed to a point which makes this region different from the rest of Africa. In fact, there are many South Africans, you know, whether they think hard about it or not, who believe, you know, that they are different and that Africa is the others. I mean, you know, but this is, uh, uh, anyway, something we will definitely come back to, as you can imagine. And then there's the middle band, which is West, East and Central Africa. And I'm sorry that I didn't have more time to go into this, but perhaps I, I'll have to at the beginning of the next lecture. I'm almost suddenly going to have to spill over. Because the issue is, how does this typology of human societies play in Africa? And uh, one argument is that the vast middle belt, if you like, of sub-Saharan Africa uh, never had many cities, didn't have states until perhaps towards the end when they were resisting imperial incursions, um, you know, the 19th century or thereabouts. And so therefore, this whole area is, uh, belongs more or less to the barbaric or tribal or pre-state or pre-civilization or pre-urban uh, stage of society. So what we have is a, a traditional conception of the regions of Africa, which say that South Africa is an advanced capitalist society, however peculiar. North Africa was always a central player in agrarian civilization. Uh, the vast bulk of the middle of Africa uh, somehow failed to uh, enter Charles' urban revolution. Now, uh, I'm going to leave it at that, but I'll give you the headline of where I'm going to go, because I, I think I have to come back to it. And there's a limit to how much time we can spend talking about whether the Egyptians were black or not. Uh, so so I'll come back to this next time. 
Uh, but my conclusion is that even if this distinction is true, that Southern Africa is a more advanced capitalist society, North Africa has always been part of the urban revolution, the rest not, I would argue that the best way to interpret the 20th century is that this was the period when all of Africa entered the urban revolution. It, I mean, maybe it already did partially before, but one of the ways of understanding this, at a time when uh, the rest of the world is essentially uh, entering a, a phase of global capitalism, that uh, Africa, which for reasons which need to be explained, was partly detached from the urban revolution, as a result of the 20th century, entered it fully. So, and not only that, and this means that Africa uh, may be uh, more alike in terms of its form of uh, social organization now than it has ever been in its previous history, which might account for the fact that they can play football with each other. I don't know. Uh, but I'm sorry if it was so compressed, but I would rather have a shot at giving the overall picture and I hope that next time and in subsequent lectures we can uh, explore some of these claims in more detail.